Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we will continue our ongoing discussion with AAF President Douglas Saltzaken. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. How are you doing? Not too bad. How's the last week been? Ah, it's been great. Um, it's cooling off a little bit. I like fall, so it's, uh, it's a good time of year. Yeah, sweater weather's coming around the corner, so we get to, you know, bundle up in, in our favorite hoodies and sit on the couch and watch football. <laughs> well, yes, except and, uh, I don't know when we get to play the Titans. We'll have to figure that out. Right, right. Oh, yeah, you have to wait a whole uh, – I think they I think they announced today that they're pushing it way off into the future, so you'll get a bye week this week. That's what it looks like, yeah. It's the time we live in. At least – I mean, I don't know if you follow baseball as much, but the playoffs are happening now, so you get something. Yeah, there's, there's – I'm a sports addict. Whatever's on, I will watch. <laughs> about the same. I mean, I watched the NBA championship last night. Great game, um, but didn't have a dog in the fight. So it was good to just sit there and watch. Right. All right. Let's start with the elephant in the room, which is, of course, the first presidential debate. Um, the discussion has largely focused on the back and forth between the candidates. Um, but let's put that aside and talk about the actual policy that may come out of the debate. In terms of Trump's and Biden's policy objectives, what did you hear on Tuesday? Oh, it was very thin. Uh, they they used the uh, Supreme Court vacancy to pivot to health care, um, where, you know, both uh, made their points. Uh, President Trump making the point that, you know, he wanted to get rid of Obamacare. It was a failure. And uh, he hoped that that's what the justice would do. And uh, candidate Biden pointing out that he was in favor of pre-existing condition protections and uh, the the right to choose for women. And so that, that was, I think, pretty boilerplate stuff. Not a lot of uh, not a lot that we learned there. Um, sprinkled throughout the, the sort of fisticuffs were a couple of other things, uh, a bit on tax policy where Biden said he wanted to get rid of the, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. That's stronger than anything he's got on his on his platform. Uh, he wanted to roll back some of the high income provisions. Uh, and, you know, um, Trump announced his opposition to the Green New Deal. So I don't think that was a big surprise either. So um, very thin on policy. This continues a trend that um, at least I see in in presidential races. Uh, you know, I was on the McCain campaign in 2008. I thought that was a fairly meaty policy discussion. 2012 with Romney and Obama was thinner yet. 2016, um, you know, Candidate Clinton had all sorts of proposals, but that's not what the election was about. And here we go again, uh, 2020, Biden's got a website full of proposals, but that's not what the debate was about. Right, right. Yeah, unfortunate. But let's just dig into some of those policies anyways. One area that you already mentioned that was discussed at length was the health care um, situation for President Trump. The criticism was that Republicans have failed to offer a comprehensive vision for how they would reform health care. Does the criticism ring true in your mind? And what did you hear as the plan going forward? I, I think it's a fair criticism. Uh, they did have um, a bill in the House of Representatives that passed, and um, it was a, a sweeping overhaul of the Affordable Care Act, as well as reforms to Medicare and Medicaid, um, and uh, that bill uh, went on to die in the Senate. And from that point forward, there hasn't been a consensus on the Republican side about where to go in health care. I, I think that's a, a perfectly fair assessment. The president himself has put out a lot of executive orders and done some rulemaking in the area of, of drugs and 
uh, you know, a, a fairly aspirational um, pre-existing condition protections and uh, did some some real work on the uh, the ACA individual markets with short term and limited duration plans, changing their structure, the health savings accounts. So you can go through and find activity. And I think that's what President Trump is talking about when he says, I have my, my plan, I, I, I've done it. But it really doesn't uh, total up to a, a comprehensive restructuring of, of the big programs that drive healthcare in America. And those are Medicare, Medicaid, and the Affordable Care Act. And until you change the way they pay for care, we don't get a handle on the increasing cost of care and uh, the sort of inadequate quality standards that we run into across the nation. Got it. So on the flip side um, for Biden, the criticism mostly from Trump was that Democrats are just pushing the socialized health care, uh, Medicare for all and such. Same question. Do you think this criticism rings true? Uh, Democrats have. And, um, you know, I, I think correctly, Biden pushed back, said, no, no, I, I, I oppose that. And he did. That was a big difference between the Sanders camp and the Biden camp in the primary. Uh, you know, Sanders was Medicare for all. Uh, Biden was like, no, we're going to stick with what we have. I'm going to add a public option in the in the Affordable Care Act. We can come back and talk about that. Um, but he, it, in the process, he firmly protected employer-sponsored insurance, which is the, where the majority of Americans get their insurance. So that that's something that he wanted to make the point of defending. And, and the president's not right that Biden is all for Medicare for all. He clearly said that. This public option, however, um, raises more questions than it answers, to be honest. Um, if you look at the people who are uninsured in 2019, so before the pandemic, it's sort of typical uh, uh, conditions in the United States, um, you know, of those who were here lawfully, uh, about 77% um, were eligible for either Medicaid or Medicare or employer-sponsored insurance. So they're walking around uninsured, even though they're eligible for one of those uh, options. Uh, and another 10% were affluent enough to be above the line for subsidies in the Affordable Care Act. So, so that gets you about 13% of Americans uh, who are uninsured and they're not either affluent or already eligible. And that turns out to be those individuals who were um, uh, not in the states that expanded Medicaid eligibility under the Affordable Care Act. So that's the population that, that's out there that you, you, you seemingly really want to cover. And there's nothing about the public option that's targeted on those individuals. So the public options, one of two things, and a sort of empty promise or a stocking horse for Medicare for all, because, you know, if you can get that, you just sort of keep uh, pushing out. So on the Republican side, there's a lot of skepticism about the public option, which I, I think is understandable when you go through the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the public option being a big sticking point back in when they first passed um, Obamacare. I think, you know, it was the thing that was holding it up in the Senate most. Well, it's, it's back. Right? Yeah. And, you know, we, we're going to hear the back and forth for the remainder of the uh, campaign. But I think this is going to be a more heat than light moment on the policy front. Got it. So one of the other policy topics that did sort of come through a little bit during the debate was, um, the economic recovery, reopening the economy. What is the difference in the candidates' views on the economic recovery, and what kind of plans did you hear um, from each candidate? I think it's really a matter of priorities. Um, you know, top priority for the president is to get the economy going again, um, and and given a choice, uh, a tough trade-off between more economic activity and more exposure to coronavirus infections, he chooses more more economic activity. He chooses that regularly, and I think. 
what uh, candidate Biden is offering is at the same juncture, I'll choose, uh, you know, sort of locking things down, uh, keeping social distancing and, and masks in place longer, whatever it takes to minimize exposure to the infection. So um, that's a genuinely difficult choice and it, it, it occurs um, on, a, on a daily basis. And that's what I hear them saying that plays to their bases. In the polling that AAF did recently, it's up on our website, we looked at voters in five uh, sort of key states, swing state kind of uh, places, Arizona, Georgia, Iowa, Michigan, Ohio. And, and, and it turns out that if you ask them what's their top priority, uh, it's either getting the economy going or fighting the virus. And it's very tight. But inside that, that near deadlock is nearly all Republicans say the top priority is getting the economy going. Nearly all Democrats say it's fighting the virus. And so they're reflecting their bases. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's set aside the, the, the presidential election for now um, and turn to Congress. Um, Speaker Pelosi this week released a new $2.2 trillion legislative aid package related to COVID-19. There are also some news reports that Secretary Mnuchin is pushing a similar package that was similar to the Problem Solvers Caucus proposal. What are the key provisions in each of these and how, how did they differ from the last round of proposals? So the Pelosi uh, bill, uh, which is still hanging out there and which she is offering to take a vote on uh, if they can't come to a deal with the administration, uh, and then, then they'll go home. They'll say, we, we voted and, and, and make their point politically. Uh, that's really the same thing as the $3.4 trillion HEROES Act with things just scaled down. And the way they got scaled down is just to make them shorter, right? So instead of having a, a, a program go through the end of uh, say 2021, you, you just have it go through the, the middle of 2021 and, and it's just sort of slice back the dollars that way. So it's not a step forward in anything other than the size of the package, the composition, including things that many Republicans think have nothing to do with fighting the recession and, and the coronavirus, um, that, that problem remains. It also doesn't have things that Republicans consider essential. There is in there no business uh, liability protection uh, for lawsuits related to coronavirus. And so um, I, I, you know, I think it's not really close to a deal, to be honest. I think uh, hope springs eternal and you're here seeing a lot of uh, coverage to the, to the fact that uh, they're still talking. And I think that is good, but um, they're not getting to a place that I could see passing the Senate. And until, until that gets live, until you hear Mitch McConnell say something other than they're very far apart, which is how his caucus feels, we're just seeing a kabuki play where Pelosi says, look, I was willing to negotiate, but they didn't come up with anything. And the president gets to say, I tried to, to cut a deal. And I certainly think the secretary of the treasury wants to cut a deal, but I, it just doesn't look like there's a deal that'll pass. Yeah. I mean, so where are these coming from? I mean, it seemed like a couple of weeks ago, you know, we've been talking about this, that the general consensus, consensus was that negotiations were dead until after the election. So, I mean, is it coming from the president? Is it coming from electoral pressure? What, 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 what's driving this discussion this week? I think, I think the president would love to get a deal. Like, you know, he, he wants two things. He wants, number one, to be able to say, I got the deal. I'm a great deal maker. That's a point of personal pride. It is shared by his secretary of the treasury who said, I'm a great deal maker. And so he wants to, to get credit for that. The president would also like to have checks arrive just before the election that have his name and maybe even his picture on it. God only knows um, that, that's appealing. So that that's pushing this. I think the Speaker of the House is just uh, playing with him. 
like like a cat with a mouse. I mean, she's she wants to look like she's engaged and making progress, but there is no particular reason why Democrats who have a candidate leading at this point are going to want to hand the president a legislative victory and the opportunity to advertise it with checks right before the election. So at this point in the year, in my experience, the candidate drives this stuff. The legislative leaders, the speaker, minority leader are listening to what the campaign is asking. I cannot believe the Biden campaign is saying, hey, let the president cut a deal. Let him send the checks. It's, so I, I'm quite pessimistic that they'll get anything done. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that really answers my next question, which was, you know, do you see this as a genuine attempt to get a compromise? And, you know, do you think there is a likelihood of an agreement? So I guess the answer to that is no. Yeah, I, I don't. Um, count me cynical, I guess. Um, you know, and, and but, you know, for the record, I'm wrong a lot. and We'll, we'll see. I'm not in the room. And sometimes you, you can be surprised. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's turn to tomorrow, which is the uh, September jobs report. We're going to get that. We're going to see the numbers. Um, what do you expect from this report and what will it tell us about the recovery? I, I expect a, a, another sort of solid number. It's it's really hard to get the magnitudes right, but to have some sense of it, uh, the, the ADP report, the payroll processing firm, puts out a report. It came out uh, yesterday and it showed about 750,000 jobs. Uh, spread nicely across small, medium, and large businesses, goods producing services sectors. So, you know, it, it, a very solid report. That was up from uh, about 450,000 the month before in the ADP report, which was again up from the previous month. So the ADP shows strengthening employment over the past three months. That's a promising trend. It's not a guarantee that's what we'll get tomorrow. The ADP report and the, the official BLS um, employment report often don't match up real well. But I certainly think we're going to see something that looks like somewhere between you know seven hundred thousand and uh, a million jobs, maybe maybe more than a million. It, it, it's it's a, a wild west out there right now trying to figure this out. What has gotten a lot of attention has been the sort of high profile Disney announcement. They're going to lay some folks off the airlines. I, I don't think that tells you very much. I think it was a surprise that Disney reopened. Um, most leisure and hospitality was expected to not recover very quickly. They're most exposed. The airlines, that this has been in the works for a long time. I mean, from the moment the CARES Act passed, it said, look, you have to hold on to your employees until September 30th. And the airlines started planning to lay people off. Yeah. Um, and if you if you actually get inside this, some of the airlines are cutting deals with their unions uh, to, to stave that off. Delta's waiting a month. United's waiting until next June. So, so that I don't think it's as bad as all that. Uh, news suggests, and I expect us to continue to recover. Um, you know, we've got 11 million people continuing to be on uh, unemployment insurance. We've, you know, we have only half the jobs back, so there's a lot of work left to be done. And a you know, million dollars, uh, a million dollars, a million jobs um, a month doesn't get you back that fast. It takes a long time, but but that's the kind of progress we're going to make. Mm -hmm. Will anything in the report tomorrow impact the likelihood of getting an aid package passed before the election? Uh, if I'm wrong about everything I just said, and we get a zero or a negative number, there's an aid package the next day. I mean, you know, th both sides will genuinely panic. I mean, the way to think about this, a way to think about this, an optimistic interpretation of what we've seen is America is very divided. And historically, America has been very divided at times in our country's history. But when there's a genuine emergency, we get together and solve it. And, and in March, there was a genuine emergency, and you saw Congress uh, unite and solve it with the CARES Act quickly on a large scale. 
And so one way to think about it is they don't really believe there's the same kind of emergency right now. So you're not getting a deal. If the data somehow say there is, they'll get a deal. And, yeah. and that'll be bad. Yeah, I remember. I I mean, you've said this plenty of times in hearings before Congress that it was kind of amazing how quickly Congress came together and passed that back in back in March and uh, April. I get continually frustrated by the sort of Monday morning quarterback and the complaints about you know the Paycheck Protection Program or or this that or the other thing. By the standards of of response to a crisis, that was an A. I mean, that's all there is to it. It was it was, it was tremendous. Yeah. One last question on the report. Do you see this report affecting the outcome of the election at all? I don't think so. Um, you know, we, we know that by and large, the American public is locked in. They've, they've made up their mind. It's done. There's something like 6% of Americans who are out there who you could possibly influence one, one way or another. And something like 2% of them live in states that are going to matter electorally. And so what moves them? Well, it's got to be some very significant economic event or very significant political events. And I don't think tomorrow's jobs report is likely to be that. It's It's got to be either 11 million jobs and everyone's back, or I don't think that happened, we'd notice, um, or, um, you know, a, a real problem on the downside. So I, I don't think it's going to move the election much. Gotcha. Um, okay, so I want to end today's discussion on COVID-19 testing. Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, among others, I believe, announced that his that his state would use antigen testing that would give results in about 15 minutes. The governor wants to focus these rapid testings in um, high risk population in the schools. What do you make of this approach? Uh, the, the world is migrating toward my preferred testing strategy, um, as we've discussed before. The 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 sort of highly um, accurate clinical tests that that we um, are we sort of began using are, are very expensive, take a long time, but they can detect uh, minute amounts of the virus's um, RNA, which is the sort of signature that that they're looking for, and, and that happens long after you're contagious, perhaps weeks or months in some cases. On the other hand, there are these other tests which aren't as accurate for minute amount, but but when you're contagious may not yet be symptomatic, but the virus is ramping up. There are millions of uh, RNA being spewed by the virus and, and tests can pick that up. That's what you want. You want a, a cheap test that will, will pick that up and tell people to stay home. That's, that's really the information you want. And we've seen um, a variety of testing things uh, move that way. They're, they're the Abbott test that you can drive up and get the results in 15 minutes. They use a machine. The mach so you actually have to have a sort of mobile lab kind of thing. Uh, Abbott has also announced another new test, which can be administered by a, a health professional, which is just a swab and a credit card size um, uh, device. And you take a, a simple nasal swab, not the, the brain probe that people talk about, and you, you put it in and in 15 minutes, it changes colors. And you know, it's sort of the equivalent of a, of a pregnancy test. And I think we'll soon get to one that they can self-administer, that a person could self-administer and, and, and that's, that's ultimately what we want. It, the real shame is we came to this strategy too late. You know, we've, we've been at this now for nearly, uh, nearly a year by the time we're going to get there. Um, and, and, and sooner would have been better. But, but this, is, this is a step in the right direction. You, you want to not test for do you have or have you had uh, COVID-19, but are you contagious with? That's what you want to test for in many of these public settings. Gotcha.
I mean, we've discussed in past episodes on this topic, but how would this kind of test aid the economic recovery? Look, if we could get to the point, which some people believe is, is actually perfectly scientifically feasible, where you just had essentially uh, strips of paper and you could do it with saliva. And so every morning you got up and you licked a piece of paper and saw if it turned colors. We'd hit, distribute that to everybody. Everyone at AF would have such uh, a deck of papers. So you'd get up in the morning, you'd, you would take the test. If the test was negative, you came in. If the test was positive, you stayed home. And that way we would know every, everyone could come in the building safely. Um, you could you could administer them at the door of big events. Here, you want to come to to the basketball game? Mm-hmm. Got a test to walk in. Person takes a test, put the bracelet on. If they're good, they can come in. It, it changes the world completely because you, you you you're testing for contagion, and you're also uh, you can eliminate the the need to do all that contact tracing because you're essentially testing all the contacts too. You just test everyone. Logistically speaking, would this be easy to replicate on a national? Um, nationally? Right now, um, you know, I think Abbott is at capacity for these, these, uh, you know, sort of um, little, little tests the, the government has bought a hundred, they can make about 50 million a month, they bought 150 million of them. So they've bought the supply for the next three months. It's gonna be hard to replicate that to, to the, to, to everyone every day, right? That's 320 million tests. Um, so, so yeah, the answer is yes, yeah, scaling up is hard. But, um, you know, I think this is something worth continuing to work on because, um, you know, knock on wood, there may yet be another pandemic. Coronaviruses are uh, all uh, all over the place and they, they you know, mutate and, and we, we run this risk again. And so having a strategy, not just for this virus, but for dealing with viral pandemics is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about downsides to this to this testing method? What are the risks of an inaccurate result here? If you have a uh, uh, an inaccurate result, then you could have someone who is infected go to go into an arena or, or go to, to work or, or whatever it might be. Um, that, that's always a risk. Tests are by nature imperfect. Um, if you if you're doing something where you, you know you really want to be sure, you test twice. Um, you know, a lot of times there are false positives as well. So if you know you test positive, take another one, it's negative, clear it. This has to be going on. So when they talked about the the NBA bubble, they said no one had tested positive. I think that's impossible. That no, we don't have a test that good that there aren't some false positives. So what they must mean is anyone in that NBA bubble who tested positive, they retested uh, probably the, the more accurate, um, expensive test and cleared them. And, and so they've, they've managed to, to keep the virus out. But, but a testing strategy is always going to be involved with some errors on both sides. Gotcha. Well, Doug, that's all I have to discuss today. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Um, unfortunately, this is our last weekly podcast together. Um, we'll move to bi-weekly after this. Um, okay. you're going, I think you're going on vacation next week. Um, yeah. So in the in-between weeks, we'll have uh, AAF policy expert, different AAF policy experts filling in, filling in on those on those off weeks when it's not you and I discussing the current events. Um, so thanks for you know doing the weekly podcast for the last couple of weeks. I have lost count of how many weeks it's been. <laughs> a lot, um, but I you know uh, I hope the, the listeners have enjoyed it. I hope and I'm sure that they will enjoy the the other experts as they come through. Absolutely. Um, so you're looking forward to you're looking ahead to vacation. Uh, you, you're excited about all that. Yeah. Um, you know this is genuinely just uh, Beth and I uh, taking the dog, going to the beach, and doing nothing for a week. That's the plan.
Yeah, I've heard you've been sequestered. Sequestered and not allowed to do any AF type things. Uh, it's it's supposed to genuinely be a vacation, not one of these disguised work jobs. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. And I look forward to our discussion in two weeks from now. See you then. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.